than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give honour to others, and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labours go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan, when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers, or incline my ear to my instructors, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, is led astray. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And before we think about those verses together, let me pray for us and ask for God's help. We read last week in Proverbs chapter 4, Let your ear hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. We pray, Lord, that as we give time to thinking about your words over the next few minutes, you would please help us to listen carefully to what they say. And please help us, by your Holy Spirit, to keep them. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You Christians are obsessed with rules about sex. I wonder if you've ever heard that kind of thing being said before, perhaps even said it to yourself. It isn't an uncommon view. Richard Dawkins, for example, the, the famous, famous atheist apologist, describes the Bible as being morbidly obsessed with sexual restrictions and the God of the Bible as being sex-obsessed. I guess you might expect, though, that kind of critique from the likes of Dawkins, and yet the critique doesn't just come from fairly militant atheists. It isn't at all uncommon for for Christians themselves to flinch at talk of a biblical worldview on sex or on sexual ethics. There was an article written by an author who described herself as a a progressive Christian that was published a few years ago by CNN, the big media outlet in the United States. The article was called Why Millennials are leaving the church. And for the author, Christians' apparent obsession with sex and relationships was part of that problem. She wrote this, The evangelical Christian obsession with sex 
can make Christian living seem like a little more than sticking to a list of rules. And perhaps you agree. Christian or not, you might well be of the view that the Bible is overly concerned with sex and relationships. Until we turn on our TVs or access media streaming services, I guess. Or we turn on our radios and listen to the lyrics of of popular music. Until we listen to, to, to public debates on sexuality and gender, which make sex a defining feature of who we are as humanity. And even until we spend time having open conversations with friends or colleagues who perhaps themselves aren't Christians and begin to realize that that the Christians aren't obsessed with sex, that our world is. And actually, not only is our world obsessed with sex, it's also deeply confused when it comes to sex and relationships. On the one hand... The only restriction people want to put on on sex and relationships is consent. So as long as people involved are consenting adults, then anything goes. And yet on the other hand, so many people know the upset and the brokenness caused by the misuse of sex and relationships. Our culture is obsessed and simultaneously confused when it comes to sex. And it's into that world that the biblical ethic on sex, which in one sense might be portrayed as restrictive or limiting, is actually utterly liberating. And if you're in any doubt, the key theme of this evening's passage in Proverbs is the theme of sex and relationships. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. What we have in Proverbs chapter 5 is a description of God's good design for sex and relationships. Often articulated in poetic language. But it is nonetheless a description of just that. And actually what we're going to see this evening is that although the biblical sexual ethic might sometimes look a bit restrictive. That God isn't anti-sex. It was his idea. And that his call to follow his good design is intended not for our frustration, but for our flourishing and our joy as people. Let's think about that under our first heading. Beware the danger disguised as delight, verses 1 to 6. Now, as we delve into Proverbs chapter 5, we bump into someone whom we've already met in the book of Proverbs. She is, verse 3, the forbidden woman, or in another translation, the adulteress. We were introduced to her in chapter 2 of Proverbs, but she had a bit of walk-on part in chapter 2, and she takes center stage, really, in chapter 5. The author, Solomon, paints a vivid word picture for us. We're to picture this forbidden woman with honey dripping from her lips. She looks and sounds sweet and attractive. More than that, her voice, verse 3, is smoother than oil, by which I take it we're to understand the smoothest and purest of olive oil, rather than a barrel of the North Sea's finest. Everything looks very attractive so far. But there's a sting in the tail. What looks attractive is instead, verse 4, bitter as wormwood. Wormwood is effectively a kind of poison. 
what looks smooth is instead, verse 4, sharp as a two-edged sword. So you see, things look sweet and smooth, seem attractive in the first instance, but are ultimately bitter and sharp. Just how are they bitter and sharp? Well, because those honey lips and smooth words that seem to promise so much, they ultimately lead to destruction. Verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to shale. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. Now the author is picking up on some of the, the ideas or the imagery from the passage we thought about last Sunday night in Proverbs chapter 4. And if you were here last Sunday evening, we were told to walk along the path of God's wisdom. But if last week told us about the way we should go, well, these opening verses of chapter 5 are, are, are like a, a flashing neon road sign warning us, danger ahead. Allow yourself to come under the influence of the sweet, smooth words of the adulteress in Proverbs 5, and you'll soon find yourself, quite literally, on a highway to hell. Now, it is just worth saying, I think, that the, the, the whole book, the whole of Proverbs, is framed as, as Solomon, that, that great king of God's people, passing on wisdom to his son. And that's partly why this individual is depicted as an adulteress, as a woman. That isn't meant to make us think that the problem described in Proverbs 5 is only a problem for men, and that it's only a problem caused by women. It most certainly is not. And in fact, the woman in verses 1 to 6 isn't even a real specific woman at all. She's meant to be a sort of personification of temptation. What Solomon's saying is, you may meet either a person or a situation that seems to promise you the world, everything you desire, but it ultimately brings destruction. So, beware. Now, what does any of that mean for us today? Well, in the first instance, I think it is a very clear warning against adultery against sexual activity outside of a committed marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And the honey smooth words, well, they might not even be the ones spoken by someone else. They might be the words we tell ourselves when faced with temptation. It isn't a big deal, we might tell ourselves. We can stop it at any time we want to. We're in control, not the temptation. Or perhaps he or, or, or she understands me better than my husband or my wife does. They treat me like I want to be treated, like I deserve to be treated. Beware, says Solomon. Those honeyed words, ones we may even speak to ourselves, they might sound sweet, but they are poison. They will lead to destruction. And actually, we can take things a step further than that, because you see, Jesus, when Jesus teaches about sex and relationships, he says that adultery isn't just a problem when we act on it with someone else. It's a problem even when it's internalized in, in our thought lives and in our hearts. It doesn't really matter if I watch pornography, someone might think, because, well, who does it really hurt anyway? It's a victimless crime. 
Apart from the fact that that definitely is not the case and that the pornography industry is riddled with horrific abuse, it's also a lie from your own perspective. It isn't a victimless crime. The one who will pay for that crime is you. No matter how much of a handle you might think you have on it, it will lead down a path of destruction. Now that is the warning. A warning about the danger disguised as delight. And I do wonder how it strikes us this evening. Some of us might well feel the weight of it. It is a strong message. But others might have switched off. Maybe because this doesn't feel like it's much of an issue for you. Adultery or sexual sin is someone else's problem. It's the world's problem, not mine, you might think. Well, if you have switched off, let me please ask you to wake up. Pastorally, I've been involved in a number of situations over my lifetime in which one spouse has very sadly been unfaithful to the other. And each situation has been different. But one thing that's been said pretty much every time is this. I never thought it would happen to me. I never thought it would happen to me. And Solomon's saying, I think, if you think this couldn't happen to you, well, just don't be so sure. And if anyone should know, Solomon should, because this is exactly what happened to him. Despite being warned against it, Solomon married multiple women, had multiple concubines. He knew what God would have him do when it came to relationships, and he ignored it, and things fell apart. See, getting wisdom in the area of sex can be the difference between living a life of joy and flourishing as God has designed us on the one hand, or a life of destruction on the other. So beware the danger disguised as delight, says Solomon, verses 1 to 6. But what are we to do with all of that if we see that there, there might be a danger ahead, if we appreciate that the flashing warning sign isn't for someone else, but it might be for me, then what am I to do about all of that? Well, that's what Solomon turns his attention to next in verses 7 to 14. Avoid the attraction that results in regret. Now, one question that very often comes up in discussions around sex and relationships, particularly actually with teenagers and youth groups in my experience, is how far can I go? What kind of media can I get away with? What am I really allowed to watch before it's bad? How far can I go with my girlfriend or boyfriend before it's out of bounds? What is the the outermost boundary on my behavior that would still be considered okay? It's a very, very common question. And yet in Solomon's view, that kind of question is is upside down. Because rather than working out what the the, the boundary is and, and trying to get as close as you can to it, Solomon's counsel is, if you know where the temptation is, you know where the boundary is, keep away. Verse 8, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. If you know the street where temptation lives, avoid it. Don't even go near the door of the house. Why? Well, firstly, because as we've already seen, that is ultimately the path to destruction. But secondly, because it's also the path to regret. 
One of the most popular songs played at funerals in the UK is uh, the Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way. It's meant to be a, a, a sort of glorious celebration of individualism, of, of, of living life by your own rules and no one else's. Well, in Proverbs 5, Solomon carries on to picture someone effectively on his deathbed singing. And the words of the song sound quite a lot like I did it my way. Only he isn't singing it as a celebration. And in fact, it's less of a song and more of a groan. Let's read verse 11 and following with me. At the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you see how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Solomon's picturing the deathbed confession of the man who didn't listen and instead did things his way. And notice, it's a confession full of regret. And just how common that can be. I remember that shortly after Fiona and I got married, we went to stay in a hotel for a couple of days and we were sitting in the restaurant downstairs having dinner. And um, it it was quite a cheap hotel, so the tables were very close together. And there was a couple sitting at the table right next to us. And we got to to chatting with them over dinner. They seemed quite warm and friendly and fun. And uh, over the course of a few minutes, they fairly brazenly told us how they had both previously been married, but had had an affair together. And had eventually left their spouses to be with one another. And they were, they were sort of laughing about it as though it was quite funny telling us about how they had to sneak around until they eventually decided to run away together. It all seemed like a bit of a joke to them. Until they explained that they each had children with the spouses they'd left. Whom they didn't really see that often anymore. And that life was actually very complicated and and, and really quite difficult now. And you see, there was such a disconnect between the the, the sort of flippancy with which they'd clearly taken the decision to run off together and the pain and the sadness they'd caused so many other people and on closer reflection had really caused themselves. See, the Bible's teaching on sexual relationships and, and their place in marriage might sometimes feel like it's out of step with contemporary society. Might seem like a bit of a drag. But you see the kind of regret that ignoring it can lead to. And so just remember that the, the upshot of all of that, of the regret felt at having done it my way, the big imperative or command in verses 7 and 8. Listen to me, says Solomon, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house. The big command is avoid it. When you hear the silky smooth voice that would tempt you to entertain infidelity or would tempt you to entertain lust in your heart, just remember the consequences of listening to that voice, the destruction and the regret, and flee from it. Shut it down. Don't go near it. Very practically, if there are certain contexts in which you know you're tempted into sexual sin, stop putting yourself in those situations. 
If you're married and there's a colleague or a friend with whom you feel tempted to indulge a romantic attraction with them, don't brush it off telling yourself it could never happen to me. Flee from it. That might even find not having, or finding a new job if it comes to that or, or not spending time together on your own. Or if you've got a problem with pornography, don't tell yourself it's no big deal or that it isn't harming anyone. Flee from it. Difficult though it may be, make sure you only use your phone in a public place or get accountability software on your devices. Acting on the attraction, says Solomon, will result in regret. Don't act on it. Avoid it. That's our second point this evening. Now, I'm well aware that so far things have been rather negative, haven't they? Even my sermon headings have given that sense, avoid and beware. And uh, one way, I guess, we do often get this slightly wrong as Christians, or at least get our, our emphasis and tone wrong as Christians, is in allowing conversations about sex and relationships only to ever be in the negative. Having almost the default position as Christians down with that sort of thing without really knowing what sort of thing we're saying down to. And the reason that emphasis is a bit wrong is that it's out of kilter with how the Bible talks about sex and relationships. Because you see, the biblical view is that sex is God's idea and that in its right place, it is a wonderful thing. And that's where Solomon takes us next. And so that's our next point. Pursue the pleasure of faithful fidelity, verses 15 to 19. The main imperatives so far have in Proverbs 5 been about avoiding and being aware, but notice the shift in emphasis in verses 15 to 19. Read verse 15 with me. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Or verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Sex, as God designed it, is a wonderful gift from him. And just notice the flourishing language he's using of of flowing water from your own well, of a fountain being blessed, of rejoicing. There's a richness to it. God's design for sex for one man and one woman in a committed marriage relationship is not a bad thing. It is a wonderful thing intended for our flourishing. And that does put what we might otherwise think of as restrictions, the beware and the avoid of Proverbs 5. It puts them in a wider context, doesn't it? And a friend of mine called Bill used to keep pet goldfish in a pond in his back garden. Bill is a real person and those goldfish are real goldfish. The rest of this, I'll ask you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that after a while of keeping goldfish in his pond, Bill started to worry that his goldfish were, were looking a bit cooped up. Uh, they weren't really free as they should be. And so he decided to take them out of the pond because you see there was this whole garden for them to play in. That's much better, he thought to himself, as he lay them down on the lawn. They've so much space to enjoy now. They aren't cooped up in that miserable pond anymore. They're free. And in one sense, Bill would be right. They would be free with so much more space. But in another sense, that freedom from restriction, it isn't a good thing. Actually, that freedom from restriction isn't true freedom at all. It's destructive. It's deadly. What those fish needed to be truly free, to enjoy life to the full, wasn't no restrictions. It was the right kind of restrictions. 
Put them in the water. That's where they truly flourish. Now, before any of you go and call the SSPCA, Bill did keep all of his fish in a very well-maintained pond. They lived long and happy lives. None were left lying on the lawn. The reason I ask you, though, to imagine that scene with me is that we might approach sexual ethics, as the Bible described them, as freedom limiters. We might think that the way to be truly free, to live a liberated life, is just to shake them all off. But can I just say, do that, and you will find yourself like a goldfish lying on a grassy lawn. It isn't true freedom at all. It will harm you. And that's why it's important to see that God's design for sex, whilst it does involve some limitations or restrictions, those are ultimately for our flourishing. That we would enjoy sex as God made it to be. That means that if you're married, sex is part of God's good gift to you. That will look different in each instance, but it does help to see that God isn't a cosmic killjoy when it comes to sex. He made it to be enjoyed in its right context. And if you aren't married, it still helps, I think, to know that God isn't anti-sex, that he isn't trying to steal people's joy or fulfillment in life. Because you see, there is a danger that kind of idea creeps into our minds, that God gives sort of arbitrary rules about who or what I can do, and that he's just a bit of a spoil sport, that he's really out to kill our fun. Not least when friends or peers seem to, to enjoy so much more freedom when we do than it, uh, when it comes to sex and relationships. Solomon would say, no, 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 you've got it the wrong way around. God hasn't given rules to spoil your fun. He's told us how we were designed to flourish that we would be who he made us to be. Now, um, so far we've seen that sex can have horizontal implications between us and other people, can have internal implications for our own personal regret. But lastly, we'll see that it can also have vertical implications. That's where Proverbs 5 ends. And so that's our final point this evening. Be mindful of the Lord who ponders your paths, verses 21 to 23. Now, I have already touched on this idea this evening, but it does bear repeating. Our culture, I think, places very little framework on relationships other than the framework of consent. So if there are two consenting adults involved, both going into things with eyes wide open, then what's the problem? Who am I really hurting? The problem, at least one part of the problem, is that our behavior doesn't only have horizontal implications, though it often does. It also has profound vertical implications. Implications for our relationship with the God who made us and who's told us how to flourish. And that's where Solomon turns his attention at the end of Proverbs 5, verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The God whose wisdom ought to guide our paths ponders our paths or in other words he sees and cares about what we do now the principle we're meant to grasp here isn't that we're to obey him because we should be terrified of him or we should wait for him to smite us the second we don't we unpack that more fully as we thought about psalm 34 this morning if you were here now the idea is that god the same god who's told us how to flourish when it comes to sex and relationships he sees and knows all things 
And so it isn't only our relationship with other people that's damaged by being unwise in this area. Even our relationship with ourselves. But ultimately, and most fundamentally in fact, our relationship with the one who made us. Be mindful of the Lord who ponders your paths. Verses 21 to 23. Now I'm mindful that for many of us, we don't need to be told that God ponders our paths that he knows everything about us including our sexual histories and i guess the idea that sexual sin may well fill us us with a a horrible sort of sinking feeling because we're all too aware of our own failings in this area maybe as you look back on your life you can see multiple situations in which you didn't choose wisdom in this area but chose folly Uh, And perhaps even reading this chapter in Proverbs has felt like half an hour of salt being rubbed in a wound of those mistakes, reminding you of bad choices which you regret and consequences which you live with. Well, God does ponder our paths. He takes sin and sexual sin seriously. And yet, the same God offers grace, even to the unwise, to people who've made whopping great mistakes through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus, on the cross. And so if reading Proverbs, even as we've thought about it over the past few minutes, has pricked your conscience, well, the wisest thing you can do in the first instance is cast yourself upon his grace, ask for his forgiveness, and for his help to follow him in all the days ahead. For your flourishing... And for his glory. Let's pray to that end now. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you again as the God of all wisdom. As the source of all wisdom. As the only one, therefore, in whom wisdom is truly found. We pray for your help for each one of us this evening that we would see quite how important it is to pursue wisdom. We'd grow in our fear of you, our right reverence for you, our knowledge of your word, not least in the book of Proverbs. And that that would cash out in how we approach sex and relationships, not least in a world that would love to obfuscate and make things so much murkier than they are. We do thank you that in what feels like a very unclear world, that your word does bring clarity. Pray, Lord, that we would please be thorough to that and not embarrassed by it. In all these things, Lord, we know that we need your help to walk closely with you and to grow in wisdom. And pray that you would please grant that to us by your Holy Spirit's work within us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.